the history, let's be real, of experiments in communizing child rearing have often been, yeah, you know, messy. And guess what? You know, so have all attempts at overthrowing capitalism so far, which doesn't mean that it was a mistake to try. Writing a book with a cover that says abolish the family is taken as provocative when that's actually genuinely not the intention. Abolition is the concept we have for a simultaneous destruction, preservation and sort of transformation of something. We will find out what the social is when we stop running indoors to get our needs met in this private realm. You can't overthrow capitalism, I think, without changing the family. And you also definitely can't change uh, the family without, without overthrowing capitalism. If you did try to abolish the family without abolishing capitalism, you would create a nightmare worse than what we have. This is the Verso Podcast. My name's Ben Smoke. I am the commissioning editor of Huck Magazine, and I'm here today with Sophie Lewis to talk about your new book, Abolish Your Family, A Manifesto for Care and Liberation, which I've already marked up. Um, so, okay, let's get cracking. Number one, do you want to take my grandma away from me? Will you take her, please? Take her. <laughs> I can't promise to take your grandma away, Okay, well, I'm off then. I'll see you later. <laughs> Great, we're done here. <laughs> I, um... No, um, it's a reasonable question, isn't it? Because people feel like, you know, abolish means um, destroy. You know, it, it, it sounds like abolishing the family, yeah, means perhaps separating people forcibly, which is obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but it, it, I think it, it would be a horrible thing. And mm. indeed it has happened at various points in history that people have tried to forcibly, you know, uh, enact forms of reorganization of households. Like I, I, I'm not about that. I'm not about forcibly separating people and um, abolishing the family is, you know, in a, in a philosophical kind of way, you might want to say that it's about bringing people together for the first time rather than separating them mm -hmm. and figuring out a more beautiful way to be together. Um, but we can we can maybe expand on what I might mean by that later on. But but for sure, no, your okay. gr your gran has got to stay. Oh, mate, what's the point? <laughs> um, I guess that's the thing, isn't it? Because you know, it would be fair to say there is some controversy around sure. the notion of abolishing the family. I haven't heard of it. No, I mean it's uh, it's been very very low key. <laughs> but, um, yeah, there's a kickback, and there's a kickback. I was trying to think because I was reading it um, kind of last night and trying to to figure out because it's. There's, we'll kind of get into the, the nitty gritty of it, but mm -hmm. you know, it, it makes a lot of sense from a left perspective when you sort of unpack it. But mm -hmm. even from the left, there's this sort of, mm. you know, you're trying to, you're, you know, this is why no one likes the left. You're trying to steal people's sure. families, your killjoys, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And this, I kind of wanted to ask you about that visceral reaction from people. You kind of talk about it in the book. You understand that emotional mm -hmm. visceral reaction, but kind of unpacking why we have that. Because mm -hmm. um, I could feel it myself when I was reading it, being like, you know, I'm a mummy's boy, without doubt. And I could feel myself being like, not mama. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah. And it is, you know, one of those sort of like hits you right in the gut. So I wondered if you can kind of unpack that a little for us. Yeah. Gosh, uh, it's um, it's not something I'm consciously doing on purpose to sort of um, pick the topics, the, the real wasps' nests, the things that... Um, I think somebody put it to me, succeed at pissing everybody off somehow, <laughs> but it, it does seem to be where I'm intellectually interested in going. 
and uh, I am not. Shall we unpack that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what my analyst is for, I guess. But it's um no, well, you know, I suppose more on a more serious note, it's um I suppose that I'm 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 called to the challenge of thinking about these really difficult questions of how those intimate spheres are affected by capitalism and how they are political. Um, and, you know, the family is this this thing that we don't think about as um, an economic institution or um, a state institution. We think about it as, um, uh, well, we don't think about it mm. in a way. And, and, and when we do, I think there's a, a kind of understanding that it flows naturally from the fact of human childbirth or something like that. And that you are living with who... It, it is sort of naturally or cosmically ordained for you to live with and you, you love them for reasons that are almost like beyond comprehension. Um, that, that, that your people, whether they're sort of biologically or legally sanctioned, are, are your people in a way that um, has always been this way. People's visceral reaction is something I foreground because I don't think anybody really very few of us have no fear of the idea of a radical change in the in the domain of family we're, we're manufactured through it it's actually asking you to contemplate um something that you cannot co contemplate mm. because you are you because of the family it's how you were produced um, so there is a little bit of a heady dimension to this. When people have talked about it in the past, they've they've insisted that that there has to be some element of tolerance among us, the utopians, for the the unknowability of what that would look like to to have a a story about people and how they are made, how we are made. That is, uh, you know, to use a bit of a jargonistic word like non-dyadic right not necessarily viewing people as a as an addition process of mom and dad uh which i mean th there's a there's more to unpack but you know we we basically um don't know what a post-edipal like landscape psychologically for people would would be and we have to tolerate that but in the meantime what we can i think project ourselves into or imagine is what the world would be like if materially people weren't sort of a bit blackmailed into relying exclusively on the private household for care. Mm -hmm. So that's that's not about trying to change the relationships that are nearest and dearest to you. It's about everything else, paradoxically. It's about um, building the world with all the sort of I don't know, healthcare, even cooking and food provision services, you know, therapeutic and educational services and, and um, infrastructures that would mean that um, the family was a domain of, of, of real choice or real freedom. And you weren't um, co coerced into needing it so much. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. But I think the visceral reaction makes complete sense. Um, I have it too. Um, you know, I wrote my first book uh, about the labor of pregnancy um, at a time when um, my my mother was uh, dying of cancer. And we had quite a 
difficult relationship, but there was a lot of love and care at her deathbed. And it was quite a, an intense tension or paradox um, in some people's minds that I would be writing about the attempt to hold this person who birthed me and and uh, and parented me in a comradely way as she died um, while recognizing that she deserved a lot more than the family throughout her life mm. and that she was in a way quite care deprived um, in a way that I certainly could not you know reverse by by loving her enough no matter how much I tried right and 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 understanding in a very deep way that um, if you love your family, you 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 want family abolition, mm. paradoxically. Yeah, I, I think that's quite, that's kind of what comes through quite a lot in the book and um, <clears throat> this idea of of love and, and the way in which we're conditioned to experience, expect and see it um, through the family. I guess that kind of to follow on from the like the idea of this visceral reaction to it. It's almost in order to kind of get to a point of saying, well, you know, I'm a family abolitionist. One needs to kind of decolonize one's mind when it comes to love. Mm -hmm. And I think you kind of explore it a bit about this idea that you know, love is the thing that we're supposed to be striving for. Love is you know, where we're like what we want. That's the mm -hmm. um, you put it way more articulately than that. But I'm gonna let everybody read it rather than just quote you. Um, and I've, I, that was kind of, yeah, my, as I was kind of working through it was, I found myself kind of being challenged and challenging my own conception of, of love. And because for me, my socialism has always been, you know, it's for a you know, small L love of humanity as wet as that sounds. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's this idea that everybody deserves love and deserves happiness and deserves care. Uh, and then, but it sort of you know, hadn't properly ever occurred to me that that conception of love was in of itself infected by mm. the kind of behemoth of capitalism. Um, and I kind of, maybe the, one of the most ugly segues that's ever existed, going, I wanted to go from that into <laughs> um, the people that have kind of come before you um, that began this kind of journey of, of abolitionism. Um, the yeah, I wondered because you kind of do a kind of potted history of family abolitionism. I wondered if you can maybe take us on a whirlwind tour of that um, because I think it's actually really important to like recognize where these thoughts come from yeah. um, and kind of how we've got to the place that we're in right now. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Yeah. Gosh. Um, well. A lot of people um, assume that I would start the potted history with Plato because there's some stuff in, um, you know, Socrates' remarks about the just society that could be called family abolition. But since it's not about movement, I'm not really as interested in it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of philosophy, bioethical scholars love to, to still talk about, sort of debate Plato's case for abolishing the family as a... And I'm mentioning it partly because... I suppose the useful element of it is just the the really simple principle Socrates has that it's unfair, <laughs> which is a little a little sort of odd if you're convinced that you know nature makes it so. Mm. But but he's he's talking about the the lottery of an, an a human infant being sort of thrown into a particular household that then 
uh, happens to completely circumscribe that future person's class identity and fate and uh you know that that in a sense it uh you know we we should take a more collective responsibility for the raising and nurturing of future humans but as i said i'm actually only interested in the people who were dreaming of ways to struggle together which is a different history and where i begin is the french utopian socialist charles fourier <laughs> <laughs> It's a little bit of a pronunciation issue. <laughs> I think you nailed it. This is, do you see? Do you like how I managed to work myself out of not having to say his I like, name? I, I was very impressed. Thank you. And <laughs> so <laughs> I get paid the big bucks. I'm gonna call him Charles. Yeah, Charlie, um, I reckon. Charlie, big, big Charlie, <laughs> je suis. Um, and he uh, was, yeah, such an odd duck. <laughs> Definitely had some extraordinary, like scientific opinions about the almost ecological future that would be brought into being by abolishing um, bourgeois society. And you know the trope about utopia as somewhere where the rivers flow lemonade? Mm -hmm. That kind of comes from him because he felt that Anyway, this is a bit of a sidebar. <laughs> no, no sidebar me. Like... I, wanna, I need this in my life. I need to understand. No, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful um, element um, of his imagination um, that um, the whole metaphysical, the, the, the biophysical world, sorry. Uh, Fourier felt that the, the biophysical world would uh, be affected by the transformation of human social relations. So he had some sort of strange uh, <laughs> geoengineering ideas about like sweet rivers and uh, you know that's some like 4am at the afters shit it's amazing it's incredible he says that rather than sharks and lions which are bad mm -hmm. there will be anti-sharks and anti-lions <laughs> in the future so this is a really silly way of convincing you that we should revisit this guy but he is amazing and um contrary to you know mainstream cultures uh like, um, stories about feminism and lists of sort of history's important feminists. Um, the two people that I begin with, Charles Fourier and Alexandra Kollontai, are not listed, despite the fact that um, the the French utopian socialist was the guy who came up with the word feminism. He should be the original girl boss in a certain <laughs> sense. And so should Kollontai, who was one of the first ever ambassadors for a nation state on the world stage. She was um, a family abolitionist left Bolshevik. I mean, this is skipping a hundred years, mm -hmm. uh, but but um, uh, you know, it, it just really amazes me that this history has, this consciousness has sort of been lost. That the original um, sort of <laughs> I'm using this term girl bosses, and now I'm committed to it. We're, we're, we're committed to the destruction of the private nuclear household mm -hmm. and the dyadic parenting form. So Fourier is talking about this. Um, communalized way of living. He, I think he says it should be 1,200 people or so in a very specific architectural um, home with, with provision for some privacy, but also a lot of things, um, you know, carefully organized to be uh, done together intergenerationally. Um, it's all very anal he has a plan and a timetable really? for the utopia okay. of the future this man is yeah he's gone in. <laughs> see all i'm imagining right now is like a warehouse in manor house but like expanded out one of those like chaotic like, <laughs> 
Well, the ones where you wake up in the morning and you're there and you're like, oh, no. Yeah. Oh, I've made an error. <laughs> <laughs> well, he would be right with you because um, queer orgies were very much part of his uh, uh, future society. And um, I love this guy even more. The yeah. more and more I hear about him. Rivers of Lemonade, anti-sharks, queer orgies. Let's go. <laughs> what are we still doing here? And, and, and I think that's exactly the spirit to revisit these figures in mm-hmm. because it's certainly not the... Um, you know, the program that you want to take mm-hmm. and and adopt. But it is, I think, the sensibility um, that um, everything could be different. And um, that, you know, for example, children and women um, might uh, deserve to be sort of busted out of the um, architecture of the private kitchen, for example. And it, a lot of people were inspired by him for a long time after he died. And there were lots of experiments with communes um, and, you know, those imploded and went badly. And, you know, the the history, let's be real, of experiments in, you know, communizing child rearing and, you know, moving beyond the coupled private nuclear household have often been, yeah, you know, messy. um, And you could you could argue just defeats, failures. uh, and and guess what? You know, so have uh, all attempts at overthrowing capitalism so far, which mm. doesn't mean that it was a mistake to try or that it remained. You know, we, we can yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> right. This is, this is sure. no, but yeah. I, I I think people are really keen to say you know, um, the kibbutz massive failure. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, communes. Um, you know, massive failure. Let's let's abandon any attempt to transform the terrain of our of our home lives. You know, it, because that can only turn into totalitarian disaster. I think that's um, that's a wrong conclusion. And in any case, we don't we don't actually have a choice but to transform our intimate lives because capitalism is there as well. Mm-hmm. It will it will have to change. This is the scary thing about revolutionary transformation it will automatically uh but 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 hopefully in a way that we can determine consciously together like uh, change how we love and Fourier was talking about bourgeois society's hypocrisies um in a way that was very kind of inspirational to the to, to Marx and Engels and then um Kolontai who talks about love as something that is infected with the germ of property so she has this concept property love, which is, I think, a really interesting and important um, understanding of how the love that we deserve as human beings is not fully available to us yet under conditions of capitalism, because we cannot help but um, view the objects of our love in a slightly proprietarian or, or possessive way. Mm. Um, and she says that in order to unleash the social force of a sort of red love, we will have to change materially some of the building blocks of our society um, to, to enable it to, to, to blossom. Um, and so she thinks that that includes um, a little bit like Fourier, the, 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 the private uh, um, kitchen uh, uh, should be not the default, um, but perhaps um, certain basic needs of, of human beings in a society should by default be met in the public sphere or the common sphere. 
Uh, which is not to say that if you love cooking for your friends, you wouldn't be allowed to do yeah, that. I was going to say, how am I going to make my fancy gnocchi now, mate? Your gnocchi, are you good at making gnocchi? I can't make it for shit, but I like to <laughs> pretend I can. I buy it and then I just make it like fancy sauce. Yeah, I love like, cooking for my friends. Cute. But I guess this is like part of, to kind of go back to that, the idea of um, the kind of love being infected by capital, being yeah. infected by property, even on a really small scale right now in London, say like, rents are through the roof yeah and um i know well i was having a conversation with a mate the other day and we were talking about the way in which um specific kind of market conditions really impact our like the speed of our relationships and the tone and timbre of our relationships i know so many people who've sort of like got together and then three months later are moving in not because that's how that relationship would naturally have evolved but simply because a thousand pounds for a room you know, on the wages that most people in this city are earning is simply, you can't do it. And so people are sort of forced into this. So yeah, I think, you know, to to talk about love, to talk about relationships, to talk about any kind of human interaction necessitates the introduction of an analysis of capital, right? Yeah. An analysis of capitalism, of the way in which it has infected everything. So, which I, you know, which I guess is the the premise of the idea that one needs to abolish. Yeah. Um, and I, I kind of wanted to talk a bit about that idea of abolition and the utility of it in this, um, in this kind of frame because there's a really good bit bit in it because I was reading it and I was like, yep, agree, yep, agree, and then the and I was like, but do we need but abolition? Should we should we expand? And then I got to that chapter and you literally said that and I was like, we are one mind. It's so true. <laughs> um, but what I really liked about it was that you sort of you know, you kind of detailed the arguments about the idea of expanding the family rather than abolishing it, um, changing it, um, evolving it, and also I think quite rarely in these sort of texts. You said you were kind of compelled by them. You know, there was they convinced you to a certain extent, um, and then went and kind of like knocked them down afterwards. Um, but I guess that sort of for me, when as I was reading it, as I was thinking more about abolition, um, and towards the end, you sort of talk about this. You know, we're in this sort of great period of abolition. We've seen discussion around the abolition, abolition of uh, the police, discussion of the abolition of borders of border forces. That's quite an easy, I mean, in some ways, mm -hmm. an easy thing to think because, you know, the police, they're bad, mm -hmm. bad vibes. We don't want them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, they just, they don't have a good energy. You, We're not getting anything from them apart from, uh, you know, <laughs> shit. And so it's quite easy to make that argument. Um, borders, slightly more complex, but also quite easy to be like, actually, do you know what? Yarswood doesn't mm -hmm. seem great does it and most people will be like yeah you know what locking people up indefinitely not on board with that whereas with the family it's so entwined mm -hmm. with love yeah and love that people feel and you know Absolutely. treasure and you know it becomes part of the core of who they are and often how they sort of go on to do things in the world is it becomes their foundation so i wondered if we could talk a bit about like how we how we said decolonize before but yeah kind of decolonize our minds from that and yeah. get to this sort of abolish the family position big question just it, yeah, yeah no, it's a, <laughs> one word answer <laughs> <laughs> um gosh so you're you're exactly right that 
um, it is shocking, you know, to, to compare prisons and the family. I don't, I'm certainly not saying that they're equivalent structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, or I also am, you know, really insistent, though, that what I've learned from the abolitionists who come up through the, the sort of prison industrial complex, anti-police, critical race theory, that abolitionist tradition that you're, that you're talking about, how they actually again and again explain that if we did burn down all the prisons today... Uh, certainly, it, it it would be a good thing, mm. but it would not be abolition. It'd be fucking chaos is what it would be. <laughs> <laughs> it, <laughs> they, the, my kind of chaos. Let's do it, but maybe not like a fertile ground for a fruitful utopia. Yeah, Ab- um, abolishing. If you really want to nerd out about it, is a concept that in everyday language, sure, uh, tends to be. Um, used to, to mean destroy, but I, you know, and 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 I and I appreciate that. That's why, you know, uh, writing a book with a a cover that says abolish the family is 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 taken as provocative when that's actually genuinely not the intention. If I if I if I thought that there was a a, a good alternative, I, I would say uh, something less hurtful i'm not actually getting kicks out of upsetting people um uh, but there is i think something necessary about using this framework because abolition is the concept we have for a simultaneous destruction preservation and sort of transformation of something a realization of its promise that's the beautiful thing that i take from the concept so and, and you're like hang on what what is what are you realizing about prisons when you abolish prison? And and what it is, is the, the promise of justice, which the prison industrial complex and the, the, you know, the criminal justice system is a travesty of. It's, this is, this is how, you know, the, the people who theorize about this dialectic, I think, teach the process of abolition. You have this infrastructure that says, um, we will keep you safe. Um, and what it what it is actually doing in in colonial white supremacist capitalism is um, uh, very far from that, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. it's 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 murdering people. It's segregating people. It's uh, it's it, it infecting our imaginations with a sort of carceral um, attitude that shores up private property, et cetera, et cetera. I can't distill what the prison industrial complex does in the present, but it's not justice. Mm-hmm. And what abolition does is not burn down the prisons exactly, although it does maybe also do that, <laughs> but it builds the world that would make prisons a sick joke, uh, some, a, a distant memory, um, you know, that would make it a travesty in everyone's minds of of the ideal of justice like an unthinkable institution that's that's the extent of abolition it's mm-hmm. no more and no less ruthie wilson gilmore says than than the the changing of everything everything has to change one thing which is everything which is the bad news tricky <laughs> <laughs> but, but, just a little thing then yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and and so with family, I do think it's important to actually use the same word mm-hmm. because you're looking at this 
almost utopian ideal or aspiration that people have in connection with family, which is um, to be held um, almost unconditionally, to be to be known, to be loved, to really be there for one another in a way that is free from the market um, and from the state. That's um, that's what we hope family is. Mm. I think on some level, m more people than you would think know that it's not quite the case, that, that actually um, there is politics, for want of a better word, and the economy mm -hmm. up in your business, <laughs> in, in, in your private. Truly. Yeah. Truly all up there. You know. <laughs> Just, oh. <laughs> um, which you know, and but but you know, my potted history didn't get very far because I'm I'm always Sorry, so. Yeah. No, was no, my bad as well. It's not like, your Here's another thing I thought. Well, Let's no, go. but it would take me hours, wouldn't it? I can't I can't summarize. But that I Good guess job, there's to, a whole book on it. So. Well, it's very short, um, yeah. which is one thing people love. Um, and uh, but to to sort of skip another um, fifty years from Kolontai, I guess just to to link in with what I'm saying here, the 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 really epochal contribution of um, women's liberationists in the the sixties and early seventies was to insist to really hammer home on this point that the the home is not um, actually, although we all want it to be, uh, a true sanctuary from the domination of the market and of the state. Um, and so the, you know, the, the unorthodox Marxists of the Wages for Housework International Committee um, and the, who, who summarized their position, um, well, Silvia Federici summarized the position as actually wages against housework. Nobody thinks that you could get wages for housework. Um, making that demand was an impossible um, uh, declaration of war it was it was a um almost like um a way of exploding the the totality that they were saying exists between the factory and the social factory they were saying that when marxists rightly point to this hidden abode of production where you know you you have marx kind of like you know um uh drawing the curtain back to show you what actually goes on in the production of value. And it's this, um, it's this horrible thing <laughs> where capital meets labor in the, in the formal workplace. Uh, but then what they, what this incredible moment for me, the way I see it in the early seventies is that these women are saying there's another hidden abode behind this hidden abode. It's a hiddener abode. It's, <laughs> and it's, the it's hiddenest. The, yeah, the hidden, <laughs> hiddenest, uh, which is the family. Mm -hmm. And that's where it really gets difficult to think about um, the abolition of work, for example, as the supreme value in our society, which I do insist with, with, for instance, the wages for housework sort of autonomous tradition is the goal of, of proletarian struggle. It's not to make uh, the workers be on top one day. It, it, we all do like being on top every now and again, though. Now and again. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's about... <laughs> it's about workers being pillow queens forever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, about, it's about workers having abolished themselves as workers, Ben. Mm, sure, um, yeah, no, yeah. A much more sensible salient <laughs> point. <laughs> no, but, but, and I think the, the, the challenge, the challenge that we have to rise to is, is this 
this insight that work and the family are are one mm-hmm. um, and that you actually can't you can't really have one without the other um, so in my book I think I say my my definition of the family is almost the family is the reason we we want to go to work it's the reason we have to go to work and it's the reason we can go to work mm-hmm. and if you think about it like that I think it really clarifies why um, it makes sense to talk in these slightly totalizing terms um, about the family rather than, um, you know, constantly insisting I only mean the white family, I only mean the, the, the bourgeois family. The family is bourgeois in this, in this society um, because it privatizes care. Um, you, you kind of get to why it doesn't make sense to um, almost like exclude the very people that are closest to abolishing the family um, from <laughs> family abolition by saying, oh, um, your families are, are, are great. Yeah. Um, does that make sense? It's sort of like, you know, we say queer family, we say, um, you know, uh, very rightly, there's a there's a huge tradition of insisting, um, and I hope I do a lot of that too, on the, the resistant power of black families against the state in the United States, for example, or, um, you know, um, indigenous families against um, the colonial state uh, and so on and so forth. It's really intense to say family abolition in a context where, um, you know, um, Palestinian families are essentially under uh, under fire, right? Um, mm-hmm. Being torn apart uh, or, or migrant families at the border. But, but it sounds like... Um, a, a horrible thing to say, but it, it's it's actually um, it's actually the important politics that we need in these exact points of uh, violent intensity, because if we cannot see beyond um, the valorization of family when we defend migrants who are being torn apart, for example, at the at the, at the border, ultimately. I think we stay within the logic of a certain kind of respectability where people get admitted um, into um, the the wages of uh, familism, um, uh, which, as we know, is not working, is not working. That, that would be our horizon, mm-hmm. right? And I'm not saying we shouldn't do this. I'm not saying that people shouldn't um, protest or demonstrate or riot in the name of um, stopping family separations in my, you know, in the United States where I live, we we are anyone with, you know, half an ounce of decency is obviously demonstrating to stop family separations, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that's um, <laughs> that's wrong. I'm saying it's right. But the, the 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 sensibility we need to have, I think, is that ultimately our horizon is not family reunification. Uh, which, by the way, sometimes doesn't work out very well for, for example, a queer child who is forcibly reunited with mm. um, uh, some biological or legal relatives that uh, they, they, they will be perhaps even murdered by. Right. You don't want to be forcibly reuniting family either. But can we not have enough um, subtlety um, to understand that we, we can work to take the boot off the neck 
of racialized, colonized families, proletarianized families, you know, single working class moms and the rest of it, while also insisting that we deserve better than uh, family as the technology for meeting all of our needs. Um, so it's a bit of a long answer, but <laughs> <laughs> when you think about family as um, the privatization of care, that's what it is. It's the form that capitalism's privatization of care takes. Then you sort of start to see that um, none of us, um, you know, no matter how creative we are with our kinship, and I'm not against... Um, you know, all the things I sort of mentioned about like creative, queer, uh, you know, uh, non-white forms of doing family, um, uh, you know, th that's not sort of uh, something I dismiss or think isn't part of the horizon. But you ultimately wouldn't say expand when you're understanding what you're talking about as a, an organized scarcity, like mm -hmm. an organized form of austerity. You don't expand that you 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 abolish it right i guess part of the the maybe the issue the problem the the con, the kind of contention here or contradiction maybe is that maybe it's best sort of talked about in intermediary demands and sure. revolutionary demands right because for example you know, the right to family life is enshrined within the european convention on human rights it's something that is utilized um you know, often by people fighting the sharpest edges of the hostile environment here in the UK, for example, as a way of trying to circumnavigate the worst excesses of, you know, this government's uh, fascistic border policies. And so, you know, we, as people that, you know, believe that they shouldn't exist, kind of have to bolster that. Um, yeah. But the flip side of that is that it means that there becomes this narrative about um, single men. Yeah. Uh, you know, and they're, they're kind of deserving the undeserving. If we're going to look at look at it specifically through a kind of like migrant rights yeah. lens, and that in of itself is deeply problematic yeah. and difficult, and and kind of propagates this uh, deserving haves and have-nots, and you know that to me very much sits within the lens of this kind of overarching family narrative. And it's sort of how do you? And it's probably, you know, it's, it's a question almost without answer, because how do you fight for these things that you need to unpick yeah. without, yeah. you know, fucking everybody essentially that needs them? Yeah. Um, and I guess the, the kind of the other contention or contradiction to a certain extent is, you, you write about it as the family as this sort of shield, yeah. as this place of sanctuary um kind of small less sanctuary i guess in this sense of you know you know queer families that kind of come together and you, know, you speak a lot about um black families in america and kind of maroon communities and you know throwing off colonizers and stuff and and i think it's like it's really it's a really kind of difficult terrain right to kind of maneuver yourself through to give as, as you sort of said to give the space and the recognition of these collections of people as potential sort of um, what were incubators of revolutionary thought, um, practice, mm -hmm. acts, whilst also saying, actually, we do need to get rid of that. It's sort of being like, we love what's growing in the Petri dish, 
<laughs> but the petri dish is actually going to have to go on the fire as well. And people are a bit like, mm, I quite like it. It's, that is my favorite petri dish. So <laughs> can you not burn it? It's a, it's a complicated one, isn't it? Because yeah. the the word family, as you're kind of saying, is the word that, that people on the margins use for what they're experimentally creating and sustaining and remaking fresh every day, uh, which in a certain sense is very, it's very contradictory to the, the proprietarian institution of, of family. And so we have language as, a, as a, an imaginative limit or tension here. Um, and there is the fact that these, um, these families are often not families in the sense of being um, sacred in the eyes of the state. Mm -hmm. Like, so this is a sociological and sort of um, uh, black feminist point that has been made for a very long time that um, to put it in the most polemical way that, that exists in that tradition of scholarship, the black family is an oxymoron in the sense that the state can always penetrate its boundaries. The whole thing about a family in the sense that, uh, you know, the, the critical tradition I'm, I'm operating within talks about it is that, uh, yeah, the, the police cannot simply barge inside it. Uh, that's the concept because we, you know, that's the contract with the state, mm -hmm. you know, um, and it has a very sort of um, interesting uh, valence, its roots in sort of property law. Or, um, there's almost um, uh, a, a Renaissance era legal principle that uh, that is about a man's house is his castle. Um, and then settler colonists uh, sort of adopt this um, in North America. If you think about the the imaginary um, of the the man with a gun who's uh, who's sort of don't tread on me, come into my land, my ter my uh, my property, and I will shoot you. And I can't wait actually for you to try. Mm -hmm. You know um, uh, that 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 whole imaginary is, I think, pretty part and parcel um, of the family. Like people are always saying, aren't they? Um, kind of, you know, it, apropos nothing, they will say, you know, um, I would, I would kill for my, anyone comes for my kids, I will, I will, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, you have really, odd, you know, liberal feminists will, will write texts about, you know, um, feminism in general. And then suddenly the topic of children will come up and they'll say, you know, I've, I've got a child. If anyone ever tried to hurt her, I might kill them. And you're like, what? Who? Like, there is a there is something about the proprietary. Like, mm. who who said that? Who? Where did this come from? People are really um, uh, convinced that children as property is um, uh, the 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 area where all violence is justified in its defense in defense of private property and defense of, of one's own children. Um, and so in that sense, there's something quite different going on when people say that what they're building is family, when in fact, um, they're not benefiting in the, in the legal sense from, mm. from that status. So there was an interesting case, which I'm gonna try So there's two cases 
if I remember correctly, they were in like either, I think they were 94 or 95. I'm sure someone's going to listen to this and correct me because I'm sure that's probably wrong. But so when you learn criminal law, one of the first cases that you learn is this case called the Crown and Brown because it is fucking juicy. So it's basically these guys came together and their whole thing was sort of like knocking their dicks to bits of wood, like with nails. And that was their thing and like crack on. And they were filming it and someone got hold of this video and then they got prosecuted for GBH. And it was a case where you're talking about whether or not you're allowed to consent to a certain level of harm. And they were all like, no, we really loved it, Your Honor. Like, th this was our thing. And he was like, no. And so he sent a load of them down for grievous bodily harm. Now, the year after, there was a case called the Crown and Wilson, if I'm remembering, if I'm remembering this correctly, where this woman was in a swimming changing room and her friend noticed these cuts on her butt. And um, she was like, what's that? And I was like, oh yeah, um, Mr. Wilson just like carved his initials into my ass. It was like a sex thing. And the friend, imagine this conversation in like a swimming pool, changing room, being like, cool, 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 <laughs> cool. <laughs> Sally, it's, it's 2 p.m. on a Tuesday, love. <laughs> um, and then obviously this, got, this went to court on the same principle. And the judge in that said, well, it's not, for the courts to say what should go on. Because Mr. Wilson did it. Because it's behind the closed doors of a family um, thing. And I think that really like illustrates the way in which this kind of, you know, what you're talking about here, the way in which the, the family and the notion of like what the state, the way that the state allows violence to occur or is complicit in violence within that because of the sanctity of this family. Yeah. And it's, I guess that's where some of the difficulty comes with like pulling this sort of amorphous web of the word family apart between these like queer families of lads knocking their dicks onto bits of wood. <laughs> I mean, run free, not for me, if I'm <laughs> honest. But <laughs> um, Oh yeah. Yeah, cool, whatever. And you know, this going on in a, in a family home and in order to pull those apart, in order to start looking at it, it requires, I think you were talking about it um, a little while ago, imagination, right? And for me, abolition and the difficulty we all have as abolitionists has always been this invitation to imagine. And you kind of talk about it a bit at the end and sort of like not, you know, not like giving a prescriptive, you know, not doing a Charlie for you. <laughs> nailed it um and being prescriptive on it and i'm not inviting people to imagine i just wonder if you could kind of talk a little bit about how difficult that is yeah. within the society that we live in yeah 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 well actually the people who come to mind when you ask me about this problem um are michelle barrett and mary mcintosh these two british uh Marxist feminists who were um, living under Thatcher um, and keeping the little torch of <laughs> abolishing the family visions alive. <laughs> like, I've got a torch about the size of a matchstick. <laughs> I think that's that's the size of their torch in the 80s, the grim darkness of the 80s, where I do think in a weird way, the left could maybe do with thinking a bit more. There are ways in which the 60s are talked about too much and there are ways in which I think um, there's still not enough grieving that has been done of the defeat, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I, I've kind of been thinking about grief and 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 how we um, how we think about uh, the experience of being repeatedly defeated and the the psychological gymnastics we do. Um, I guess going back to that thing of sort of um, 
you know, failure happened. So it was, it was silly to try. Mm. Um, and, and it's a very, uh, natural cope, mm -hmm. um, almost inevitable in a certain way, like maybe, um, or melancholic, right. We talk a lot about left melancholia, but you know, the, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I wonder if that's partly because of a, an ungrieved character. Like the, the, the left had a moment of huge possibility in the long sixties and then it got stomped into the dust. And the, one of the things in the, this context that matters to me is the fact that the, the most conservative uh, reactionary strands of women's liberation were the ones left standing in the rubble. Um, and they wrote the history of what women's liberation was. And everybody hated them at the time. It, um, <laughs> it, this is Alice Eccles's point in her history of women's liberation, daring to be bad. And I just need to hammer it home in every context because um, those people are the um, trans exclusionary radical feminist uh, brand that has taken over this island uh, that, that I don't live on and didn't grow up in um, and have a sort of maybe like a, a slightly outside perspective on despite sounding like I'm from here there's this kind of way in which um, a cultural feminists Alice Eccles calls them who were quite anti-utopian at the time unlike many of their sisters and they 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 as I say sort of won and so they got to say yeah uh, women's lib um, never was about abolishing the family. Uh, this is a lie. Uh, they got to say, you know, women's lib was never about, uh, you know, fighting alongside trans women. This is a lie, right? Trans women were there in the long 60s. Anyway, bit of a sidebar, but what I'm trying to get at is, like, there is something about anti-utopianism that is structural and that we need to keep pointing to in order to start to to be able to fight it and in the 80s to go back to michelle barrett and mary mcintosh and their tiny little torch, tiny torch. <laughs> <laughs> i'll hold no. it with you <laughs> but, so everything has been lost um nobody is dreaming big anymore on the left another sidebar really quick ellen willis has a an essay at the end of the 70s where she says in the village voice what happened comrades you know <laughs> 10 years ago you were saying abolish the family. You were, I have the receipts. And now you're saying, uh, we never meant that. We never said that, you know, why? You know, you we, we were not wrong to try. Did you print the receipts? <laughs> I, love, I love for that drama. I love yeah. for it so much. It's so easy to do now because everyone tweets shit. Yeah. But back then. That's true. It was hard. Tricky. Yeah, yeah it was was tricky and um she you know she she's sort of holding people a little bit to account and notice it. it's almost like this moment in time where you can see the erasure and the forgetting being manufactured mm -hmm. um which is why today uh actually surprisingly few people have heard of this phrase abolish the family which was you know i'm not going to pretend that it was like mainstream in in you know in 19 69 or, or, or 1972 but it was something people had heard of and it was relatively um uh, accepted uh in in women's liberation as a as part of as a really central part of feminism and then people started pretending that it had that it wasn't and you have gloria steinem saying feminism has never been critical of the family 
No. Girl, what? Yeah, exactly. You it's like, to? you're just lying. <laughs> you're just lying. Uh, why are you lying? This is humiliating for you. Let's think about why we're lying. Mm. There are reasons. There are reasons. Anyway, but Michelle Barrett and Mary McIntosh refused to, to collude in that lie. And so while Thatcher was saying, there is no such thing as society, there are individual men and women and there are families, they are saying, yep. And... The reason for that is the family. Like the reason why there is no society <laughs> is the family. It's this really elegant point. They, they, the book is called The Antisocial Family. And so they're kind of turning um, the Thatcherite assumption on its head and saying, what if um, the, the family is almost stealing our sociality from us? Um, and because of our assumption that, uh, I think they have a phrase like, I'm going to get it wrong, but it's like, um, uh, love, like mother love and good things to eat is to be found in this one place. Um, that's keeping us from meeting each other in, in the public sphere. Mm -hmm. Um, and so people always ask them, they said, what would you put in place of the family? And they have this uh, response, which I find very striking, which is we would put nothing in the place of the family. Like the answer is nothing because we will find out what the social is when we stop running indoors to get our needs met in this private realm that is um, starved um, uh, on purpose by capitalism because it's ultimately functioning to give free labor to capitalism. And so you can't do one without the other. You can't overthrow capitalism, I think, without changing the family. And you also definitely can't change uh, the family without without overthrowing capitalism. That's the bad news. Mm. This this book should probably should say, you know, <laughs> Come with a uh, warning. deprivatize the private nuclear household. Doesn't have a really a good ring to it, or like it's, positively it's... supersede <laughs> the uh, the private nuclear it's not household. Quite as sexy, or like you know, overthrow capitalism, which has sort of been done a little bit. The the bad news is, yeah, you can't. You, I do not want to separate out what a family abolitionist politics would look like from uh, the struggle against capitalism, basically. Um, and I think if you did try to abolish the family without abolishing capitalism, you would create a nightmare worse than what we have. So I just want to be really clear about that. Mm. Like it might be, it's worse. You, you, would, you would create a nightmare. To, to bring us to a heady conclusion, um, because we've traveled a lot of ground, um, I kind of, yeah, the, as a sort of, as an end to it, um, the difficulty with abolition has always been this, uh, the, how big it is, right? It's mammoth. Mm -hmm. And as you were saying, trying to sort of like pull, the idea of abolishing the family without abolishing capitalism is nonsensical and it would create this dystopia. Um, and, you know, we kind of talked a little bit about the way in which to a certain extent families can can operate as an incubator of kind of revolutionary practice and theory towards the destruction of capitalism. So kind of as a as a final point, I wondered if you could kind of talk through like what is it that we as abolitionists, 
as socialists, communists, Marxists, lads, um, non-gendered lads, um, should be doing right now in the intermediary, bef because, you know, before we kind of get to the swinging barricades and uh, uh, do you hear the people sing? Mm. You know, what, <laughs> how, how, do we, how do we abolish the family now without abolishing the family? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I, I want to figure this out with people. Um, I, uh, I don't have a set of directives, but off the, off the top of my head, my, my instincts are sort of that, um, that, that well, I'm, I'm interested in children, children's liberation. Um, there is a really terrible situation right now, I think, around the figure of the innocent, desexualized fertile child who the fascists are obsessed with right the the cisgender child as a a figure of um sort of fascist incursion uh uh it, it is terrifying me right now in the sense that the left hasn't got a robust response like uh isn't is afraid i think to say um you know children are people with uh, bodily autonomy and sexualities even and uh, the right to be part of the world and to determine perhaps uh, not just, you know, uh, their healthcare needs, but also maybe who and how, um, who they live with and how they live. Like mm -hmm. uh, this was a horizon that was, that was part of this moment that I'm, I'm suggesting has been purposefully erased and forgotten. Um, and I think it's especially important right now with an assault on transgender, transgender children. Um, so I think in a weird way, I, I almost want to say, um, let's get courageous and talk to children. <laughs> you know, they are fucking terrifying, terrifying. to be fair. Uh, no, but <laughs> like, Have I, you I met do... an eight-year-old? They're nuts. Yeah, yeah, this is the challenge we must face. Um, and, they um, do slap, though. They're great. Yeah, and, and there is a sort of segregation of them, mm. isn't it? And a, and a, a real prohibition on uh, people in general just talking, you know, you, you know the, the stranger danger thing has been internalized so much that I don't even think people are really critical of it anymore. Like mm. when I dropped my um, my cousin at school at one point and I was like, this is a military airlock. Like I have to be some kind of signed off safe adult in order to be the person dropping him off. This is mad. Like, you know, um, that there's a real securitization um, of childhood, I think, that needs to be contested. And that's one sort of front that I'm thinking of. And I'm also then thinking about ways that we might um, expand mutual aid infrastructures. Um, stuff like, yeah, feeding each other, providing spaces for people to get warm or cool, depending, <laughs> you know, spaces to be. It's it's all very bread and butter um you know, anti-capitalist things in the end, because as I say, it's about building the, Ooh, sorry, <laughs> waving my hands around. Um, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's not primarily about changing the way that the, you know, your intimate relationships work. It's about building the world that puts, that, that, that takes um, the coercion out the, 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 the dependence out um, so that we can become richer in needs. I love this phrase. There's this, um, there's this way that the welfare radicals of the US who are a lot of often, you know, um, 
black women with children whom the state was truly demonizing and pathologizing. And, and some of them um, campaigned for welfare on the basis that they were, you know, virtuous moms making a contribution to society or potential workers or whatever. And some of them didn't. They were like, you know, actually there's no freedom to be had in these in these justifications of human worth mm -hmm. um, in the in the frame of motherhood and in the frame of worker. Just give us money <laughs> was, was the, was, there's was something very radical about that about refusing to justify why mm -hmm. you know my children yeah. and so on and so forth you might strategically do that at certain points but i think another just to answer your question like um i think the 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 lads the, the non-gendered lads um of the left um needs to i think yeah get a little bit braver also at challenging the rhetoric of motherhood um, because, of course, a lot of um, the people who do mothering, I call them motherers to just ram home the point that we we can mother one another after the abolition of the family. In fact, this is what will hopefully be lifted up, made red. <laughs> like I mean, most a red people love. Me, me mother me, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just get the sense I can't look after myself and push me in the direction of food and water. <laughs> It's a non-gendered mothering, isn't mm -hmm. it, that we need. Um, and there's a beautiful philosophical tradition of thinking about how those who were never meant to survive must learn to, to mother uh, themselves or ourselves. Um, and, and, and so this is the red love skillfulness that, that will become, uh, you know, developed necessarily in condition where... Uh, yeah, mothers are not just like one person <laughs> in everyone's life in a private nuclear household. So, mm. you know, the rhetoric of a certain kind of feminism is very um, uh, uncritical of what I would call patriarchal motherhood. Motherhood is an institution that, you know, Adrian Rich, for example, suggested um, needed to be abolished by, paradoxically, mothering you do mothering against motherhood <laughs> because motherhood is exclusionary and privatizing mm -hmm. um and it's about an identity and you know turfs love talking about oh, um my. the sanctity and the innocence of motherhood in fact one turf has reviewed uh this book with a title don't come for mothers <laughs> Um, Are you coming for mothers? And to bring it right back to the top of the show, Ben, uh, as I said, I am coming for your <laughs> grandmother. You can have her. <laughs> She's yours. My gift to you. No, but, you know, the reason why I'm not coming for your grandmother in that sense isn't, you know, isn't because she's a mother, right? Mm -hmm. It's because she's a comrade. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah. I guess it's. I guess maybe it's about making grandmothers of us all. Yeah. Mothers making of us all. Making grandmothers of us all. Rather than simply relying on yeah. the unpaid labor. And you know, ruthlessly critique your grandma. I do. The ruthless. <laughs> That's why we've not spoken for sixteen years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and I'm. You know, and I'm very sorry about that. Um, because it's pay well, and congratulations. Mm, thank you. And congratulations. Mm. And one thing that we haven't necessarily said outright, but which again used to be a lot more of a prevalent point, is that whereas the family in a lot of like mainstream 
narratives and policy discussions is the is still the safe place that you're supposed to go to um uh to you know for example uh escape from the you know the sexual harassers on the street is there's still i think in popular consciousness this idea that um you know assault or various forms of often sexualized violence happen maybe like in public and then the home is a refuge from it this is the opposite of the of reality isn't it and mm-hmm. and people used to say that a lot uh, feminism used to constantly say you know the home is not safe right the majority of the rape that happens on this earth and the murder and the sexual assault and all kinds of you know and child sexual abuse happens within the family it happens within the family and that alone is a almost like a humanitarian crisis mm-hmm. that in a certain way you could say wow we should really do something about this <laughs> the family is a way of allowing that violence to to be carried out with a certain kind of impunity mm-hmm. and you ex- you cited a legal case that basically uh confirms that um you know certain forms of violence are a okay uh you, you know consensual when consensual within the family but you know it was only about five minutes ago that most um states outlawed marital rape yeah, or acknowledged that marital yeah 92 in this country right which i mean i was alive which is yeah. like nuts to me because <laughs> i'm so young <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. but a fetus absolutely. <laughs> If you enjoyed that chat, or even if you didn't and you want to learn more, uh, in this new segment, we're going to talk you through some uh, recommended reading outside of this to kind of plump your knowledge up, explore more of some of the ideas that we've talked through in this. So, Sophie, do you want to start? Uh, Name some books. Go. My recommended reading. Let's see. Uh, M.E. O'Brien has a bunch of uh, essays of various lengths, a long one on Charlie Fourier. Uh, at uh, Pinko magazine called Communizing Care, uh, which is uh, about how family abolition could be imagined today with reference to what she calls the kinky science fiction writer of the 1820s. And then she has a very short essay uh, called uh, Six Steps for Abolishing the Family. Uh, And I think that's in Commune magazine. Those are two things by M.E. O'Brien. Um, do you have one? I'm gonna, I'm gonna come because you reference quite a lot. Um, Ursula Le Guin, yes. just all of it. That's my recommendation. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, it is, it's just so, again, imagination, probably I'm on a big, big imagination kick at the moment. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think you reference it so eloquently in the book and I think it will really kind of provide a very good background and additional reading to it. Ursula K. Le Guin's sort of uh, incredible inversion of the Tolstoy line, every happy family is happy in the same way and every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Yeah. This was a terrible bastardization. Of <laughs> but she I said, it, she said it's opposite. She said it's the opposite. Mm-hmm. She says maybe the unhappiness of the family is the the thing that is almost like similar across the board because of its structural character whereas happiness is the diverse unique fleeting ephemeral thing that we're not sufficiently interested in it's a fascinating thing to say i think she's like happiness is almost this kind of femme unfashionable thing for literary 
philosophers historically, they think it's almost a bit, it's a bit gay to be happy and it's less interesting <laughs> mm. for literature, for novels than unhappiness, which is very interesting. Mm. And I totally get this. Yeah, Marge Piercy's Woman on the Edge of Time uh, is a sort of 1976 novel that is, I think, explicitly um, thinking about the dialectic of sex by Shulamith Firestone from 1970, where Firestone talks about the sort of revolutionary post-family horizon and uh, Piercy uh, imagines a world where fetuses are manufactured communally for the, the town uh, in a sort of vast tank. Um, and then, and, and it's all, it, it's quite, it's quite wonderful, a bit like a sort of aquatic um, uh marine center you know um and people can i think it even feels tactile to me anyway and then after the the babies get born uh they are mothered collectively by everyone as well as having um sort of designated three parents and then one expert child rearer i love this idea that you need sort of different approaches to parenting where it's everybody's responsibility but then also it's a kind of labor that is valued enough that it's almost like uh, important to have people who make it an art in mm. and of itself, like, uh, yeah, form of expertise or something. Um, and then uh, the other thing I wanted to mention finally was um, The Antisocial Family by Michelle Barrett and Mary McIntosh, uh, which is from the 80s and is one of the clearest cases, I think, for why it makes sense to talk about abolishing rather than reforming uh the family yeah awesome great Further reading do it um thank you so much for tuning in watching listening however you are engaging with this thank you sophie so much this for has been a time. joy hasn't it what a dream abolish the family is out now you can buy it on verso.com as well as some of the additional reading um tune in again for next episode where we'll be talking to someone else great about something else cool um join a union <laughs>